Are you a Christian? If you are, do your friends know that you are a Christian? Or is your faith life more of a private matter? If you are a Christian, should you make your religious identity obvious to all? Is God disappointed if you don't? Let's talk about our public Christian identity on today's edition of Craving Answers, Craving God. I'm Chuck Rathard with Aaron Miller. Aaron is the pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. You will find this episode as well as some 40 other episodes on our website, cacg.stjamesglencarbon.org. Aaron, in today's American culture, the Christian identity is neither as common as it once was, nor is it as well-received as it once was. Openly exhibiting one's Christian character today might be considered provocative, even offensive. What happened? So uh, in, let me focus on the part of the question that you asked about um, Christianity not being as well-received as it once was. Um, one of the things that's happened, and we talked about this in some of the earlier episodes that we did, is that the postmodern revolution has happened. It used to be the case uh, prior to the 1950s, 1960s in the United States, that people in the United States, a little bit earlier in Europe, but in the United States, people had uh, a view of truth that um, they believed that truth existed and that uh, it was possible to learn it and to know it. And so when you had conversations with people, this is John Stuart Mill's notion of the marketplace of ideas, when you had conversations with people about things that were disagreeable, uh, like politics or uh, faith or religion or or anything, parenting, whatever it is, uh, you might disagree, but those were conversations worth having because truth was worth pursuing. And so it was worth trying to convince this person. And it was worth listening to them and giving them a chance to try to convince you. Uh, we no longer believe in truth in the West, and I don't have we don't have time to go into how that all happened. But I think we talked about it uh, several times in our earlier episodes. But since we no longer believe in truth, all we really have is power and coercion. And so, when I talk about my Christianity in public, it's not typically seen as my contribution to the marketplace of ideas uh, that we can now. Let's discuss it. It's usually seen as um, a power play. And so it's been it's become very difficult now to talk about what you believe and not be offensive and not offend people because they don't assume that you're offering them a, a chance to get knowledge either by learning from you or by sharpening their own ideas by bouncing them off your wrong ideas. Now they just assume you're trying to control them. And so that's definitely made things way different for my generation and your generation and Way, way different than our grandparents' generation in terms of how to talk. And this is not just about Christianity, but how to talk about ideas in general. It's very different now. How dangerous is postmodernism? For example, we have known for millennia that two plus two equals four. I saw an article, which I would call a postmodernist article here not too long ago, where somebody somewhere in some school was making the case that if you want to believe that two plus two is five, that's okay. But it's not okay. 
because if that person grows up to be an engineer and is building a bridge that I have to drive across, they have to know that two plus two is four. So if you're going to take things that are true, like two plus two equals four, and play with it and allow for other outcomes, how dangerous is that? Well, so you're right. I, it, it could be. It could be dangerous. It could be fun. I, I don't like in the ivory tower. If people want to sit around in the classroom and talk about, well, how do you know? That's a, you, one of the first verbs you used in your question. There was the word, verb know. Like, how do you know that two plus two equals four? I think that's a healthy conversation to have, and it's a lot of fun. And I, I do think that one of the things that postmodernism has done has driven those of us who do believe in truth to re-examine what do we mean by the word no? How do you know things? And a lot of us have abandoned the old myth that knowledge is provability. I can prove X to you, therefore it's true. Uh, a lot of Christian talk used to revolve around you know, proving pro the proofs of the resurrection or proving the existence of God, the fine-tuned theory or the moral argument. And what, what a lot of us have done is said, I, I can't prove that. You know, How do I know, though? It's less information processing in our head and more a relationship. That's the way all knowledge is, not just religious knowledge, but any sort of knowledge is relationship. It's always in conjunction with something else. Now, th that's postmodernism has been very helpful that way, I think, to, to those of us who are Christians in pushing us to think more realistically and biblically, uh, might I say, biblically about what does it mean to know something. However, if it escapes the ivory tower, and like you say, you know, your local bridge bridge engineer doesn't believe in math, uh, then it becomes dangerous. And so, when it's happening in the ivory tower, we have to we we, we can't postmodernism. Uh, it's too broad. That's too broad of a term for our conversation here. Philosophical relativism is better. The notion that truth is up for grabs, and it's you know you you craft your own meaning and your own truth. That that's a great. That's a great playing field inside the classroom or inside the coffee shop or where, you know wherever it is that you're hanging out trying to kick ideas around to come you know to become a more wise person. That's a great playing field for like grappling with how do we know things. But like I said, post that that, that sort of philosophical relativism on its own is dangerous. Now it's tasty because you know, we all like to imagine that we can be God, whether we're Adam and Eve or whether we're Aaron Miller sitting here now. And philosophical relativism is pretty much the only way that we can do that is to say, I decide what's right and wrong. But um, the dangers of that are just, I just, to me, just so clearly obvious. I mean, the example of a bridge engineer who doesn't believe in physics is a good example of that. So, uh, yes, dangerous, could be good, but. Uh, if it allows, if it's allowed to exist on its own terms, it's very, very dangerous. So I'm the senior citizen in the room here. I acknowledge that. I can remember when I was very young, at least it seemed to me that Christianity was not a controversial thing right. among the uh, local population. Just about everybody, just about, seemed to belong to a church. Every community had one, two, maybe three churches in it. And the question was, uh, well, what church do you go to? Well, I go to such and such a church. Oh, that's, that's fine. It was not provocative or right. offensive. But now it can be. It can, it can lead to violence in some ways. Um, so we turtle up. 
uh, we, we Christians, I think, seem to yeah. say, well, okay, well, I'm not here to hurt your feelings or to make you mad. I'll just keep my Christian identity in the background. So let's start with the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, Jesus commands his followers, which includes us, not just the followers of his day, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Now that's going to be hard to do if I'm carefully keeping my Christian identity in the shadows. So that seems to be the first argument against closet Christianity. What do you think? Yeah, for sure. We're not, we're called to, uh, you know, we're called to be the salt of the earth and light in a dark world. And uh, so for sure, we Christian, and, and, and I think that it's important to note what you've said, that it's different now. We are called to be, we are called to be the advance guard of the kingdom of God. We are the colony of new creation, wherever it is. Those of you who are listening who are Christians, wherever you're at, you're a part of the colony of new creation there in your city. Um, it's it looks different now. It was one of the problems is that one of the things that's happened is lots of times we Christians, you know, we like to blame postmodernism for this or whatever. And I guess I just kind of did that a minute ago. But uh, one of the problems is that Christianity was very cultural, and in American Christianity, uh, not all of it, but a chunk of American Christianity had framed itself as this is the way to be ethical. Christianity is about good morals and about honesty and hard work and uh, not cheating on your spouse and telling the truth. And Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. And um, a couple things happened. One is that people started to ask the question, well, can't I be a moral person without the whole church and religion thing? That was one thing that happened. The other thing that happened, though, is I think that the Christian church, uh, the, the church that truly follows Jesus, has done a better job lately of saying, okay, the Ten Commandments, those are good, those are right, we should obey those. But actually what's at the heart of Christianity is this radical universal claim by Jesus that now since he's risen from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father, now he is the Lord of the universe and must be obeyed. And that's definitely going to get some pushback. And so you know, if you're willing to make your Christianity kind of a well, I, you know, I, I I need the comfort from it, or it encourages me to be a better neighbor. People are more than happy to let you have that Christianity, but it's when your Christianity becomes thoroughly biblical and you say Jesus is Lord, and that means that Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord, and that means that money and sex and power are not Lord. Um, then you're going to get that. That's when it's going to be harder to be. It's going to be easier to be a closet Christian at that point. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Because you travel in circles that uh, where I think you get a broader exposure to what people in the culture are thinking than I do. But it seems to me that if Christian identity comes up between two people, two friends, two acquaintances, we're not even going to get to the business of Jesus paying for your sins, right. dying and rising for your sins we're going to die on the hill of the Ten Commandments. The, the sexual morality, which is clearly described in the Bible, yeah. is crossways with the sexual morality that's being promoted in our culture. The issue of life, as it is discussed and promoted in the Bible, is crossways with our understanding mm -hmm. of who's alive and who's a human and who's not these days. 
And that's where, that's where two people will part. And that's where you either got to dig in and there, there may be hostility, maybe hurtful hostility, or just go back in the closet and yeah. move on to talking about your favorite baseball team. Right, yeah. That's kind of where we are, which seems to be a tragedy in some ways because you're not yeah. going to get, you're not going to be able to evangelize somebody if you can't get past right, yeah. Yeah. abortion or the current uh, sexual morality yeah. of the day. Yeah. What do we do? Well, so that's a great question, and uh, it, it definitely is different than what we've been talking about. Uh, you know, the way America was a hundred years ago. It's definitely different. A hundred years ago, when people sort of accepted the notion that a, a marketplace of ideas was a healthy thing in any culture, you could have a one-off conversation with somebody and say, "This is what I believe," and tell them about Jesus and His death and resurrection. And, and now you can't because you're right. There's so many barriers. There's so many initial objections to Christianity. It's restrictive. It's exclusive. How can a good God be angry? How could hell exist? It's a subset of that question. If God exists, why is there evil in the world? Um, hasn't science disproved all this Christianity and religion nonsense? All these questions are there early, and you can't just be like, well, forget those questions. Forget the fact that we have different views on biblical sexuality, like you mentioned, Chuck. Uh, let's just talk about Jesus. And so those one-off conversations are no longer they they no longer work. You, you can't you, have them anymore. You say one-off conversation. Yeah. What does that mean? Where you meet somebody, you give them the four spiritual laws. If you happen to be a campus crusade person, or if you grew up like I did in the fundamental Baptist church, you give them the Romans road to salvation, which is the five verses. You know, you're a sinner, but Jesus died for you. If you believe in Him, you can. It's all great. This is great. You know, it just they're, they're ineffective anymore because of all those barriers that are up now, and because people don't believe in a marketplace ideas. A marketplace of ideas. They just assume you're trying to control them. So those half-hour conversations where you could share the gospel with somebody, that's no longer possible. And that's, I shouldn't say it's not possible. God can do whatever he wants. They're no longer common. And instead what's happening is, I'll give you an example. I, I had dinner with a, a guy last night and just a, a terrific guy um, introduced to me by a friend of mine, and he's not a believer. And we talked a, a, a bit about God and but, but I didn't actually, I didn't actually drop the law and gospel bombshell on him. I, I made a few things, a few comments to try to lead the conversation. And what I have to do is I have to say this is going to take time. If I really love this guy and I'm interested in his soul, a, I'm going to have to have a lot more dinners with him, and I'm going to have to hang out with him a lot more. And thankfully, I'm going to get to. Uh, and b, I have to say, I'm so this is a little bit off topic, but I have to say. I'm willing to invest in this guy, even if it ends up that he disagrees with me about Christianity. He's I, I I can't think of him as a prospect, or you know, as like well, uh, I think we've talked in here before about the Jehovah's Witnesses coming to your door. You know, the well, I gotta talk to this guy and share the gospel. It's my job. You know, I'm a Christian, so I'll just do this and get 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 that off my conscience. Get it over with. Yeah, I can't do that. I just really have to invest and be in it long term. Try to build respect and trust because at some point I'm going to have to say to him, Jesus rose from the dead, and it's super important for you to believe that. But for me to get to that point, he has to know I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to control him. I'm not trying to make money off of him. I'm not trying to boss him. That I actually care for him so that I earn the right 
to have him listen to me and take it seriously. But nowadays, that's just going to take time. And that's why evangelism is much slower these days. But I think it's going to be much deeper. We're going to see much more fruit, much more growth out of the people, out of our own lives as people who know Jesus, out of the lives of people who are who belong to Christ and he's calling them to himself and they don't know it yet, but he's starting to transform their hearts to believe in him. I think we're going to see, see a lot more deep growth and embeddedness in the Christian community afterwards as well. Let's consider Joseph of Arimathea. John 19 describes events immediately after Jesus' death. Verse 38 says, quote, After these things, meaning his death, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. Now, on a very superficial level, I have Joseph of Arimathea as one of the heroes of the uh, the Jesus story. Uh, he's not up there with the 12 apostles, but he's he's a good guy. Yeah. And here he is making a bold move yeah. because he's a disciple of Jesus, which I take to mean that he believes that what Jesus has said is true, but secretly. Yeah. He's in the closet because he fears um, the Jews. Yeah. So was Joseph wrong? I actually don't know. Uh, it's hard to say. I, John depicts him in this story here, you know, after the, res, you know, in the, there in the garden uh, burying Jesus. John depicts it as it, it has, I think you're right, it has a vibe of John's a good guy. In that story, he's doing good. He's doing right. Do you mean Joseph? Uh, Joseph, yeah. I'm sorry. Thank yeah, you. That's okay. Yeah, um, but but I, I just don't know. You know, I've thought about this question. Like, I, I think that it's not simple. I don't think it's as simple as you got to show all your cards on the table immediately, or you're denying Christ. Neither do I think it's as simple as it's okay to be a Christian and keep it secret. I, I think that it's probably more complex. I, you know, I think about. Um, uh, you know, I think about uh, the early church who met in the catacombs. Well, is that wrong? You know, they're hiding out. Is that is that is that evil for them to do that? I think about the uh, the, the the brave brave people who smuggled uh, Bibles through Checkpoint Charlie into East Berlin. Was that wrong? Should they not have smuggled those Bibles in those cars? Should they have like waved the Bibles in the air and say, "I don't care. I trust Jesus. I'm sneaking Christianity into your officially atheistic environment." I, I, it's hard for me to say that they're wrong, you know. The the, the church church that's all over the world today, uh, uh, in in China and other countries where Christianity is uh, uh, sometimes officially illegal, sometimes severely restricted, is it wrong to say that they're in secret? No, I do think it's wrong to deny Jesus. Maybe it's wrong to keep. I I just don't know. And maybe also when I say I don't know, I'm just protecting my own self, like. I kind of want some margin there if I ever want to keep it secret to be like, oh, it's okay, Aaron, you can keep it secret. So maybe I, maybe we need uh, to bust Joseph of Arimathea here. Maybe we need to do that. Uh, maybe we need to say the early church meeting in the catacombs so that they wouldn't get slaughtered. That's wrong. I don't, I'm not comfortable doing that, but I'm also not comfortable saying it's okay if you keep it in secret because sometimes it's definitely pictured as not good. Let's come at it from a different angle. Here's a, still another example, this time from John 12. Where it yeah. says, quote, nevertheless, many even of the authorities. Right. It's just kind of like a breakthrough. Yeah. Believed in him. Right. They had faith. But for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. 
Right. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Right. They were believers, but they were in the closet. Were they heroes or cowards? Well, I don't know. Heroes or cowards, I don't, I, I, there's not many of us that are either of those, or at least not all the time. Depends on the day, I guess. Depends on the day. Depends on which way the wind's blowing or what you had for breakfast, I guess. But I, this is another good example. Like at John 19, you know, Joseph of Arimathea, which you brought up, is not pictured as that. It's not pictured as like somehow, you know, a, a, a default of his character. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe it's because he's not in the closet anymore. Maybe it's because he asked for Jesus' body publicly. But definitely in John 12, that is pictured as a default because you know you quoted that text there. They uh, they were believers in Jesus, uh, but secretly for uh, you know for fear of the Jews because they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. And the very next verse says, John says, because they love the glory of men more than the glory of God. So John, uh, the, the gospel writer, in that moment is definitely saying that was wrong. The way that they hid there, they didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue. John's saying that's definitely wrong. So it's, there are times when hiding your faith is definitely wrong. I mean, so what we're trying to do is trying, I guess, trying to find that middle ground, or maybe it's not even middle ground. Maybe it's just more about wisdom, where you, you don't want to you don't want to hide your faith for the fear of the authorities because you want to be excluded or you you don't this you don't want to lose your job maybe and and you know very very dramatic cases or you just don't want to be the weird guy at the party in less dramatic cases but you also have to understand too we also have to understand that walking up to a stranger and saying hey you i don't know your name but repent and believe in the gospel jesus is coming back soon that's not super helpful i'm not saying that god can't use that but but it's just it, it, that's not the way but people typically aren't going to respond with hearts open to the possibility that Jesus is Lord if you approach them like that. So to be wise and figure out where and in what situations it's appropriate, where it's necessary to say, "Hey, I believe in Jesus." I'm not. What we do know for sure, 100, percent is that denying Christ is wrong. Whoever denies me before men, I'll deny before my Father in heaven. But is it possible to not always like? be thumping people over the head with the Bible and not denying Jesus at the same time. I think that's probably the case. So after Jesus had risen again, he gave instructions that the apostles were to wait for a period of time until they were clothed on power from on high, which happened on Pentecost, which was at least seven weeks, seven weeks later. And the Bible seems to describe these guys as sort of hanging out in the upper room and just they're waiting. Yeah. But they're they're waiting, I don't want to say in secrecy, but they certainly aren't out in the streets. Um and during that seven week period, we find we hear from Thomas, we find out that Thomas is not he's not all in. He's not even sure he believes what he has seen. And I think the scriptures describe the others as being more like Thomas than not. And then Pentecost happens and the Holy Spirit falls on the church and on the apostles. And the next thing you know, they are out in the streets. The next thing you know, they're being arrested and dragged in before the authorities because they're preaching in the name of Jesus. 
The next thing you know, they're being beaten and abused because they're doing that. 2,000 years later, is it correct to describe us as having been clothed by power from on high? And should we be out in the public, maybe not out in the streets, but out in the public, provoking people Mm -hmm. to the point where some of them think we should be dragged off and beaten by the authorities? Yeah. I, I don't think intentionally provoking, but definitely we need to be more out than we are. Um, so, so, but the, the way that we're out is, again, is not by trying to control people, but by offering them freedom in Jesus Christ. There's the great line, and I, I'm going to totally, I'm not, I'm just going to try and paraphrase it in the hymn, uh, My Song is Love Unknown, where it talks about Jesus being killed for, you know, what is Jesus executed for? He's executed for healing the sick and giving sight to the blind, sweet injuries. Uh, you know, he's injuring people. That's why he gets killed. He's a danger to society. Well, those, those are sweet injuries that he's giving people. And, and if, if if Christians are punished for um, being Christian, it should be sweet injuries that we're causing because we love and we serve and we're working for the betterment of uh, society in the name of Jesus advancing his kingdom. Um, but yes, definitely, we should be more out in public. Now, one of the reasons why we're not is because, and I, I hinted around at this earlier, is one of the postmodern solutions to religious faith is to say, our culture says this and the church has bought into this, is to say that religious faith is a separate car- category than rationally rational truth or empirical facts. Rational truth and empirical facts are... That's public. You can talk about that. You can talk about who won the Cardinal game last night or two plus two equals four. That's fine. But your own religious beliefs, that's private, and so keep it private. And we've kind of fallen into that trap uh, because we've started to believe that, that there is a difference between rational facts and religious faith. And again, this is just so, I don't have time to get into this now, but I just let me just say without arguing for it here is that I think it's pretty clear that there is no difference between rationalism and religious faith. That um, Many people have argued this. Thomas Kuhn, in his wonderful book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, not a Christian, argues about how these things are definitely linked. You, you, don't, come to an hypo- you don't come to a hypothesis, a scientist doesn't, without making a faith commitment to that hypothesis and trying to cram evidences, empirical observations into that hypothesis. That's the way all knowledge works. To pretend that some knowledge is objective and right and everybody agrees to this and rational, but that religious knowledge is not, it's not based on evidence because of its faith and its opinion, is actually not the way that any sort of knowledge works. But we've fallen for this and uh, we kind of kowtow and sometimes people will say, when it comes to making laws, we need to keep religion out of that. We need to keep ideologies out of that. And sometimes the Christian church is like, yeah, that's true. Which you know, which we need to just you know hunker down inside of our Christian ghetto and pray, but uh, we don't really have a right to tell people the way, as though the people who are making laws who who say we're not religious actually don't have an ideology. They don't have faith commitments. No, they absolutely do. They do have religious commitments, even if they don't go to church or worship a divine being or believe in an afterlife. They have religious commitments, and so we, the church, have failed in letting them have that space. And letting them have their own secular religion, and with their belief system, 
We need to come out of that, you know, the, the what Francis Schaeffer calls the upper story, the private story of our houses, and come out onto the street, and we need to be willing to say, no, this is truth. This is what's right, and we, we love you guys, but you need to understand that what you're saying is not objective, pure rationalism, and what we're saying is not superstitious opinion, and we need to have a conversation about what it is that you believe and what it is that we believe and start to have those conversations as lovingly as possible. But I, I think you're totally right that the Christian church definitely needs to come out of the closet. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, quote, But whoever denies me before men, I also will yeah. deny before my Father who is in heaven, unquote. So if I'm doing a pretty thorough job of concealing my Christian identity, could I be guilty of denying Christ before men? Well, maybe. I, deny, denying is pretty strong. You know, denial is pretty strong. Uh, denying is saying, no, I don't believe in Jesus. I deny Jesus. That's it. That's, he's just basically defining Christianity there. Like if you deny Jesus, you're not a Christian. That's what he's saying. I, I think there are a lot of us from time to time, all, all of us from time to time, some of us more often than others, who are not comfortable letting people know that we're Christians or living out our Christian faith in public. I'm not willing to say that we're in danger of violating this, what what Jesus is saying here. I don't think that that's the case, but that doesn't mean it's okay. It doesn't mean it's okay. Uh, And maybe some of us are, maybe some of us have, whether explicitly most Christians that I know wouldn't say, Nope, don't believe in Jesus. But through their behavior, they'll kind of like try to signal that, Oh, I'm not with those guys. I'm with you guys. Uh, there's a danger there that we need to step back away from and and, and say, uh, who is? What is our identity? Is our identity a, a member of this culture or this inner circle at work that I'm trying to get into, and I kind of have to act a certain way to get in there, or this girl that I'm trying to impress, or you know, I want to make tenure next year at the university. I need to act a certain way. I think we need to stop and examine and say, what is it exactly that we're identifying with are we identifying are we saying that my life will have meaning if i make tenure or get into this inner circle at work or if this girl will like me or do i need to step back and say no actually my identity my life has purpose and meaning because my god took on human flesh to love me and save me and i'm riding with him i'm not going to deny him whatever that means however that looks i'm not going to deny him I, i think it's worthwhile to take that verse and say you know, just you know, not not walking into the office the first day and saying, "Hey, I'm putting up a great I am poster in my cubicle. I want everybody to know here I'm a Christian." So just, that's where we're at. Just back off if you don't like it. That's not necessarily the wisest thing to do, but um, I don't think you have to do that to uh, to, to to be a, a Christian and to be willing to say, "Okay, I'm, I'm involved in a relationship with these people. I'm going to pray that the Holy Spirit." who empowered the apostles at Pentecost and now has empowered me to be a Jesus person in this office, I'm going to pray that he's going to open up opportunities for me to love these people and share the gospel with them in his own timing and in ways that will be creative and fruitful and will show Jesus to be not a power-hungry you know, head of this special interest group that wants to take over the world, but someone who longs to sacrifice himself for them and to love them and to serve them. I think that's the best way to go. I think there is a person listening to us, maybe many persons listening to us, who when they hear this topic, uh, 
they know that it's a, a deeply gray area and they're thinking, I'm going to listen to this because maybe I'll get some black and white in this because in the privacy of my own heart and mind, I really am on the guilty side of center when I think about my witness, when I think about my identity, how many people know that I'm a Christian. Not many, because I haven't really shared yeah. that identity with people, and I feel kind of guilty about it. Yeah. So you guys, you're going to spend a half an hour or so here, and you're going to help me fix this. Yeah. Have we fixed it? Because, you know, there's a... There's a middle ground between the secret saint and the in-your-face saint. Right, yeah, yeah. But that's awfully gray. Yeah. And I don't know, have we offered anything that could help somebody who say, I, I have to do better with my witness? Yeah. I, I think I think you're right. I think like if you just look at like, what am I going to do today? You know, when I go to the HOA meeting, how am I going to act today? I it, it definitely is gray. Here, here's, the, here's the concrete that maybe people want. There's a God who is completely sovereign over all things. He orchestrates all things for his own glory, who longs to draw people to himself. And that person that sits in the cubicle next to you, or you know that friend that you sit next to on the bleachers when you're watching your girls play softball, Jesus wants that person to know him more than you do. And I think that the key is, is I'm, I'm not, this is I'm not this does not cover every scenario I know, but the key is to really believe and realize. I shouldn't say it that way. This definitely covers every scenario. I'm not offering this as an out. I'm just saying if you believe in this, it will make this the whole concept easier. Believe in what I'm about to say now. There's a God, Jesus, who longs for that person to know Him more than you do. Longs for you to know him more than you want even yourself to know Him. So to trust that and to and, and to say God. I think this is a great prayer. God, I'm going to live in these relationships. Would you bring up opportunities as I love and serve? What this means is that like hiding from people is not going to work. You have to be in a relationship. If if I don't go to dinner with this guy last night, this relationship doesn't get kicked off. I just can't. I just can't be at home and be like, well, that's kind of scary. I'll just stay at home. I'm going to go to dinner and I'm going to pray. Like God, would you please draw this person to yourself? And would you bring up opportunities where my love for you and my relationship with you and your people causes them to want to know more and to ask questions? And then to trust that that, that, that God is going to orchestrate that. He's going to orchestrate that because he wants that person to know him as well. And then to really buy into the concept that's in 1 Peter 3 uh, or 4, I can't remember, Google it, where Paul where Peter says, when when someone asks you about the hope that you have, when someone asks you about your faith, answer them with gentleness and respect. Like to talk about Jesus to them with gentleness and respect and to answer questions that are asked of you in a way that's engaging and hopeful and says, hey, look, I know about life. I know how you can be fulfilled. I know how you can know that all things are going to work together for good. And to really trust God. That he's going to bring those, and if you invest yourself in somebody's life, he's going to bring those conversations up. He wants those conversations to come up. And so to pray and ask him for that and uh, to trust him. And just like, so one great prayer, I was walking into this restaurant last night, not to keep talking about last night, but it's like fresh in my mind still. 
And uh, this prayer that a previous pastor, a mentor of mine taught me, when you go into a conversation that you don't know how it's going to go, you, you, you pray, like, God, help me talk. God, help me listen. Lord, help me talk and help me listen. And just turn it over to God and be like, God, help me to ask questions. Help me to talk. Help me to love this person. Help me to listen for what they're saying and be engaged and interested in them. And then, God, you orchestrate the conversation. You take charge of it. And just help me listen for ways that you're orchestrating it. Help me to say words that bring honor and glory to you, whatever that means, and just let him orchestrate it. I don't know if I have scripture to to back up this contention, but I think God's all over that prayer. I don't think God, if if we pray that way and if we oh, yeah. give it to him and, and and open our hands and release the control of it, you better get ready because he's going to he's going to arrive and he's going yeah. to do what he wants to do. May not look like you think it's going to look, but it's not like he's going to take the day off and not answer that prayer. He's all over that prayer, yeah. right? Yo, for sure. And like, so this goes one of my favorite texts when I'm talking to kids about you know how do you know God's will for your life is the Proverbs three five and six. You know, you trust in the Lord with all your heart. You don't lean on your own understanding. You don't go in saying like oh, this is how I want this to go down. You acknowledge him in all your ways, which is what this prayer is. Like, God, I need you. This person needs you. We both need you. Can you give this? Can you give yourself to me and this other person in this conversation? And he will direct the paths. He'll make it happen. It's not like God, God's not the kind of God to be like, hey, you want to love this person into the kingdom? Okay, go ahead. I know you've prayed to me, but I'm going to sit back here and see if you screw this up or not. God is not like that. He already knows we're going to screw it up. He wants to come down and be involved and let us participate in that relationship. And so he's totally that kind of guy. There's a great story in the book of Acts, and I don't remember where this is, is either, but Paul is um, Paul's a little bit nervous. It might be in Corinth. He's going to Corinth, I think. But he, you know, he's nervous about this. You're going into a pagan city that worships all these pagan gods, and the Lord appears to him in a dream and says something along the lines of, I'm going to botch this up, but something along the lines of, be confident because I have my people in that city. Well, there's, there's nobody in the city who, who even knows the name of Jesus yet. But God has told him, I've got people there I'm already going to save. Be confident. Just go into it and love them and serve them and preach the gospel. And I'm going to take care of the rest. Lean not on your own understanding, but get busy. You've been listening to Craving Answers, Craving God with Aaron Miller, pastor at St. James Lutheran Church in Glen Carbon, Illinois. If you have a question you'd like to have Aaron address, submit your question at the bottom of our episode page. Again, that's cacg.stjamesglencarbon.org. Share your questions and comments with us, and we'll try to provide some answers on a future Craving Answers, Craving God.